0: But we are going to be reading from Luke chapter one today. If you have uh, don't have a digital means by doing it, there are blue Bibles in the pew. Does somebody has somebody gotten there? Some of you, A-type achievers, somebody. What was that? Seven twenty-three is the page. Um, there in uh, Luke chapter one, and we're just going to go through the. We're going to have David read the entire text for this morning for us out loud so uh, david if you will please read luke 1 26 through 33 in the sixth month god sent the angel gabriel to nazareth a town in galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named joseph a descendant of david the virgin's name was mary the angel went to hear to her and said greetings you who are highly favored the lord is with you Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This summer, some of the guys from the church were over in Price Hill. If you're not fully familiar with Cincinnati yet, we have some of you live in Price Hill. But whereas Walnut Hills is on this side, Price Hill is on the opposite side. That is where Dylan and Kathy live, and we were doing some work on their house. So we stopped for lunch and then for a trip to the Price Hill Kroger. Price Hill Kroger is an interesting one in of itself because you have a convergence now of communities uh, or different social economic backgrounds and races did not previously exist. When my father grew up in Price Hill about 60 years ago, um, it was a just a, a white Appalachian community and now you're seeing uh, hints of gentrification coming in, whereas there is still some settlement of both whites and blacks who are more impoverished and then a burgeoning Hispanic community. So we pulled into the parking lot and for some reason I forgot why as everybody went in and I forgot something in the car and I was coming back. And as I started walking toward uh, the front door of Kroger, I saw a little boy in the parking lot and he was wandering aimlessly. He must have been eight or nine years old. And the closer that I got to the young man, I could tell that he was emotional and distraught. And even as I got a little closer, you could see that he was actually crying and looking around. So I stopped the young boy and I just said, what's the matter, buddy? And he answered to me in Spanish. Now, the blessing that I have from a nice public school education is that I was taught for five years in both junior high school and high school Spanish, enough that I carry enough proficiency that I can have a base-level conversation with somebody. When I was, led a mission trip in Venezuela, by the end of the week, I was able to teach the Venezuelans to play euchre, instructing them solely in Spanish. And I think they got it, but I'm sure they didn't remember it and probably thought that man from America taught us some sort of demon-possessed game on the back end. This is parenthetical, not to this, but we are adding a missionary in in Venezuela next year, and we'll have some uh, information about that, too. It's very exciting, Um, very exciting, because that's a country that needs that. Sorry about my digression here. To get back to this point, so I'm looking at this young man. He's crying, and by by the time, you know, I was able to understand that he was only Spanish-speaking ...that I was able to utter to him a phrase that was taught me... ...back almost 26, 27 years ago... ...in Spanish one, eighth 8th grade by Senora Smith. And in that first week... ...I don't know if you are familiar with language learning... I'm, ...Johannes has forgotten more languages than most of us know... ...because he's a European. You do know the joke, right? Like, what do you call somebody who knows two languages? They're bilingual. What do you call somebody who knows three languages? They're trilingual. What do you call somebody who knows one language? American. That was for you, my European friend. Anyway, my daughter, who's in the midst of her German immersion language school, the way that she started learning language is day one when she was at kindergarten. They just started speaking for an hour and a half every day at her in German and that was frustrating to me because, uh, you know, like, I remember in second grade asking her how to spell a word. And she's like, I have no idea. And I'm like, what are they teaching you in that school? But that immersion process of learning a language is as such that you pick it up and you learn it and it becomes a part of you. For many of us who remembers back to our junior high, high school days, where we were trying to learn a foreign language, how did they do it? They just started off with basic syntax, correct? So the first thing that you learned to say was, hello. Because in English language, the word hello is important, Right? Ola. Uh, guten Tag. That's good morning. I, I really am... What, oh, it's not? What is another? What are, what are the other ways? How do you say hello in French? Bonjour. How do you say it in German? How do you say hello in German, smart Alec. Hallo? Yeah, that was worth it. Thank God it's a public school. But I do remember, seriously, I remember the first week of Spanish 1. And you're learning the basic syntax. And after we learned how to say hello, we learned to say, my name is. And I won't lie to you, within three months, we did learn how to say, where is the bathroom? Because that is key in any culture. We learned the phrase that I uttered to the little boy outside the Kroger parking lot. No te preocupes. Which means, don't worry. And it's funny, since that point, I've been thinking about, like, why is in the first week did they teach us to say don't worry? And maybe it's because that phrase itself holds an amazing sway. Because some of us are prone to worry, and some of us in those situations allow that fear to grip us. So for us to be able to tell somebody not to worry, it's one of the most powerful statements that you can tell somebody, even if you have nothing by which to back it up with. True. So I didn't know what the little boy was, and the first thing I said is, no te preocupes, and I was able to extract from his name, his name, he said his name was Miguel, and I just said over and over, Miguel, no te preocupes, and I said it in a way because I'm the English speaker, American, who is not actually fully conversant, so I figured if I said it in structure, that wouldn't help, so even the inflection was important, I said, Miguel, no te preocupes, and I was like, let's go inside, And I take Miguel inside, and we get to the front desk. And sure enough, by the time I'm trying to tell the person at the front desk, like, we need to make an announcement because Miguel can't find his mother. Big sister came up out of nowhere and spoke in a fluent Spanish of which the likes. I have no idea what she said, except I caught that, Miguel, where have you been? Mom is ticked. And yanked the kid away, and I never saw Miguel again. Without nary a gracias. In Spanish, the, the the phrase preocupes, you know, you're like, how does that, you know, work out? Because also it's Latin-based language and you go out, you can see the root that really means do not be preoccupied. And the, the, the link between preoccupation and worry, that seems a little flimsy, doesn't? But if you realize your life when you are preoccupied, what does that mean? It's that you do not have the mental capacity to concentrate on what you are doing in the here and now. And thus... For us to say, don't worry, actually fits within this. And that's one of the reasons why today, as we looked at this text in Luke chapter 1, and we see the parallel with the greeting that Gabriel gave to Mary 2,000 years ago when he made his announcement, it is the focus of our study of the text this morning. Just simply, for you and for I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid contains massive power doesn't it it allows us to confront the most complex human emotion that you and i will ever have to learn to control and that is the emotion of fear fear friends is not a tangible threat to our lives what is fear it's an emotional construct of potential actuality a reaction to something that may or or oftentimes may not even happen How many times have you lived in a thought of fear that has gripped you and then you get to the inevitability of the point and you realize that your worst fears were totally alleviated because it did not happen. It's silly on the back end, but say to somebody who is gripped by fear that they should not worry and they will look at you as if you're crazy. And that's why this succinct phrase that we see that the angel said to Mary, don't be afraid can be compelling when it's offered to somebody in deep need. Take a moment now and scan your memory banks because I'm going to guess that sometime in the last few years you've uttered the phrase, don't worry or do not be afraid to somebody. What was the circumstances surrounding your using this phrase? Maybe you said it to a child with an irrational dread of a monster in the closet. Maybe you whispered it to somebody in the hospital who was in the throes of a serious medical issue. Or maybe you just uttered it to your dog to assure it that the mailman would not, in fact, come and steal their soul. Why do we say don't worry? Because we want to allow the conferee to experience a relief that comes without fear or dread. Do not be afraid. This is interesting when we look in the scriptures nearly 150 times in the Bible somebody is told not to fear. Here in the New Testament it's virtually the automatic calling card of an angel coming to speak to an individual. Mary's yet one individual in the line of many biblical greats who had Uh, complete unsuspecting nature of what was going to happen to her. And although she had this impressive familial pedigree that you might have made her think she was this major person, today you can not come, especially in our Catholic city, you cannot drive around the town and see some sort of image of Mary uh, by a Catholic church or sometimes in somebody's front yard. It's tough for us to remember that 2,000 years ago, this was just a very, very ordinary teenage girl who had no concept of what her calling would mean to the rest of humanity and as far as mary knew she was going to spend the rest of her life living in obscurity that nobody would know who she was and that as her position at the time a teenager her calling in this era would have been very simply to wed to have kids to raise them and to die and as many of us are in this modern era where we construct vision statements about our lives, sometimes, you know, we miss out on the fact that back then life was much more simplistic. She was here to do her time and then to wrap it up. So when an angel appears before her, it's the most profound experience, not only that she had ever experienced, but very likely that anybody she had ever known had heard of. There was not the internet. There were no YouTube videos of angel appearance from which she could gauge her own experience, right? So when the angel appears before her, her mind is blown because she has no framework to understand what this bright, shining figure actually is. Did it come to her eventually? Sure. But at the time, you can understand that the gravity of this experience would have immediately gripped the young lady in complete and utter fear that she knew this was life-changing. And then we have the deliverer, the messenger, right here. We know that it's the angel Gabriel because of different interactions that he has throughout the birth narratives of Jesus in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, this isn't Gabriel's first soiree into biblical existence because he's actually mentioned by name in the book of Daniel... And Gabriel actually has resonance beyond the Judeo-Christian tradition because Muslims believe that Gabriel was the one who actually gave the Quran to Muhammad. So they co-opted his presence to help cement their own view of faith. But as an angel, he had very simple roles too. Created by God to dwell in God's presence, to worship and serve him, and in special events and opportunities... To be able to disseminate messages on behalf of the Lord. In the book of Isaiah we read a little bit we're given this a visual of what it looks like for the angels to actually serve the Lord in heaven. And we see this specifically in a very uh, popular verse. The the payoff of this verse is that Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. Which is this phrase that a lot of people want to say, you know, God, here I am, send me. But the first thing Isaiah is given is a picture of what it looks like to be in the throne room of God. And we read in Isaiah 6, 2 and 3, above God were seraphim. And sometimes, if you've ever read some of those hymns, you know Cherubim and Seraphim in the song "Holy, Holy, Holy." You're like, "Okay, that's just a word." It's the, it, it, it is words, Hebrew words for angels. Each had six wings. This is what's really interesting, isn't it? I was talking to Kaylin when preparation of this is that we always picture, okay, angels have two sets of wings, but the reality is they had, or one set of wings, just two wings. But the reality is that they had three sets of wings. And how did they function? With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two wings, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And by the way, they were singing to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So if I could blow your mind, if you know that holy, holy, holy hymn, the reason that we're talking about the cherubim and seraphim is this text. Full circle, I took you there. You can come back anytime you want. Here's the thing about this, is that we have angels with six wings googled this to try to find a representation i'm not sure if you could i was like i just was like i wanted to find a picture angels with six wings and this is the best i get and if you can see it's not a very appealing picture is it that's a lot of wings birds of a feather everywhere to be found why so much because they needed the two apparently for transportation and i really don't know how gravity works in heaven so i don't know if this is something so that isaiah could actually just understand what was going on because, you know, it's in space, right? Heaven's in space, so we're all floating. It's in, Maybe it's their pressure. I don't know how this works out. But the sign for you and me is this. Why do they need four wings to cover themselves? Because in their roles, spending all their moments in the presence of God, what we are supposed to know is that the holiness of God, friends is so bright and vibrant, represented by something that is absolutely blinding to us, that the only way that angels can be in the presence of God is to have the four wings to block themselves. And I love that this text was, uh, this prophecy was written thousands of years before now, before a time where we understand concepts like, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, radioactivity, where we see something a, like a cosmic force that when exposed to it, Totally transforms it. You can't see it, but you don't understand it. And this is the key concept surrounding the angels. So when Gabriel comes to stand before Mary, and similarly, when other angels come to speak to humans, that they bear on themselves the remnant of their time and the worship of the Almighty. Maybe that's why we only saw that they have two wings because the people in those times could not perceive the idea. That it, maybe it was so bright and vibrant, so those wings with which they blocked themselves before the Almighty were so illuminant that they couldn't even perceive it. And this is why in the New Testament, when we think of the phrase, do not be afraid, it's very often uttered to somebody who is seeing an angel. And here in Luke's gospel, we have two things. Last week when we were doing our child dedication, we talked about the birth of Mary's nephew, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And when the angel came to Zechariah and saw him, what was Zechariah's posture as an older man? He was gripped with fear, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Here later, after Jesus is born... And shepherds are just chilling on Christmas Eve. The angel says to them when they show up in this grand illuminance that makes them hide under a sheep, don't be afraid. And then even one later here in Acts chapter 27 when Paul is recounting his encounter with the angel. And this is Paul, the man who wrote most of the New Testament. I love that he was so ready to admit that his first reaction when being in the presence of an angel was absolute fear. And the angel said to Paul, do not be afraid. I love this because if the visceral reaction of the recipients of an angel visit is fear, don't you think God would be like, you know, like during angel, you know, team meetings when they're all trying to round table and find out best practices, you know, on the Monday morning? And it's like, hey, God, every time we go down to these humans, they are scared, bleepless, and we have to figure, you know, maybe we should tone it down a little bit because then we have to get them over the initial shock, right? But notice that it keeps happening. And I think the reason why is that the first thing that it conveys, even before the angels speak, is that this is a moment to be remembered. That it's both powerful and solemn. And therefore, friends, when you're in the midst of something like this and the angel starts speaking, there is no way you are going to forget a word that the angel uttered. And I would offer that as we read the Bible... And this is not a theological statement, but if you're looking for accuracy within the text, I'm pretty sure that these words angels uttered to people were probably quoted verbatim and never forgotten because it was the most important moment of their lives. Now this is where things get interesting because I need you to go back and look at Luke chapter 1. I need you to look at the beginning of the text when we read about this young girl, Mary, when we read about Gabriel showing up to the scene, he shows up and notice that as Gabriel begins to speak, his initial greeting is not one of fear, and I love the idea that in the midst of all these manly men greats that were were scared to death, when angels showed up on the scene, the teenage girl. Did not need to be told immediately, do not be afraid. Actually, the first words that Gabriel utters here are ones that maybe sound peculiar, especially if we see how things were going on here. Because the first thing that Gabriel says is, Greetings you who are highly favored, the Lord is With you, this is what I love about what happens to Mary. So when the angel shows up, she's handling herself. But after hearing the words of the angel, the Lord's with you, you are highly favored. That's when she goes into fear. That is when she becomes afraid. Why is this? Why the ship? I think we have to look at this a little bit internally here and ask yourself, how do you respond to stressful situations? I've been taking a couple personality tests lately because in my line of work, they want to see how I'm holding up. And apparently, at least the test shows that I do pretty well when it comes to stress. I love it. I live on it. I actually use it as fuel for my energy. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the opposite of that. Maybe you fear stress or flee it to the extent that you do not want to be put in any stressful situation if you can avoid it. Last night, after everybody left the church Christmas party, I just needed something, you know, just to, just some mindlessness to watch. And the MLS Cup was on, and you know, I had no really dog in the fight. Uh, you know, Toronto was playing Seattle. I really don't like Seattle at all at all because their fans are just unbearable. And then Toronto is obviously Canadian, so if you're Canadian here, that's your problem, not mine. But there's just this point where I was like, I really don't care, but we're watching the whole game. There's some shots and stuff. It goes into extra time. That's what happens in a championship game in soccer. They play another 30 minutes, and everybody's like, like, it's stupid because they end the game on penalty kicks. And uh, the purists are like, why penalty kicks? You know, it's like, in football, they don't line up the punter and just have them start kicking field goals at the end. And the thought has always been, if you've run for 120 minutes for two hours straight at high speeds, you don't have the ability to be able to, you know, keep at it. So basically, the penalty kick is how something's resolved. At least it involves a basic aspect of what the game is, to kick, and to try to get a ball into the goal, and then to keep it out. So again, for you naysayers, I know, hey, all sports are ridiculous, right? But this is interesting, is that the whole game comes down to a penalty kick. And what's fascinating is that you mark off a spot, there's a little dot, 12 yards away from the goal line, and you have a breadth, a wide goal that is open. And you're like, oh, but there's a guy standing in the middle of there. Yeah, but even if you can't predict, the opportunity for you to put the ball in a place that is unsavable is very high. Because where you're supposed to aim is right over here in the side. And we can't see it on a straight arm. But when I played soccer in college, there's this thing called side netting. So the goal is actually three-dimensional. And if you aim for side netting, if you hit that, it's the easiest placement that could happen. And yet, there is a high, high percentage of people when given a ball with nobody there that could kick the ball in. You had a goalie, it rises a little You put it in a regular game situation, there's more errors that are made. PKs at the end of a soccer game has the highest potential of missed penalty kicks than any other time. And we're talking this among men and women who've spent their entire lives rehearsing the act. And this is what I love as a fan, because they miss it and you're like, idiot. Why did you miss that? They missed it because of the stress of the situation, right? Right? You can take the same thing that you do all the time and put it under the guise of a stressful situation and it changes everything who you are, correct? Even Mary... You know, you're like, well, Mary really hasn't spoken to an angel. Well, she's spoken to somebody. She's received the compliment. And then you change that situation, her stress level rises. And I love here that Mary's fear was not based in just the, base, the, 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 the reality of the scene that there was this massive, glowing, winged figure in her kitchen, right? But the idea that she was hearing words from God about herself. That would change everything. Some of you are horrible at receiving compliments. Some of you are very good at it. But sometimes the most stress-inducing parts of your life is when somebody you respect mightily says something to you that changes the nature of the game, right? Maybe it's when your parent says something about your past relationship... Maybe it's it's when your professor tells you that you are actually brilliant on this singular point. Maybe it's when your employer actually says, I trust you with my business. These different aspects that we have. You can take the same situation and the stress changes everything about it. I love this. Because even though this young lady was incredibly capable and had confidence, when she heard the angel said, those simple phrases. God's with you. You're favored. What does it say in verse 28? She was greatly troubled. And she was told the simple statement. Do not be afraid. I wonder if she believed him. <laughs> she took that to heart. She actually said I could not be afraid. This is what's interesting about this story. Is I think we read too much into it sometimes. Because we ask why was Mary so freaked out about being told she was highly favored. And we like to put it that, you know, we like to put the weight of eternity on that little girl's shoulders, right? It's because she knew that someday that the baby that she would raise would come on to become the savior of the world that would change everything about all eternity for the entire world. And it's like that came to rest. I'm gonna offer you is that that's a perspective that we went to thrust upon Mary and that's not what she was really grappling with. Because friends, as much as we want to think that we are people who see the big picture and the vision for what's happening in the future, even in our lives or elsewhere, the reality is, is that we live in the temporal. That we see as far as the end of our nose. And this isn't to diminish who Mary was or her courage in standing up, but when Gabriel says to her, by the way, you're a virgin who's going to have a baby, and that baby's going to be born, and it's going to change everything, I want to offer that I think Mary was stuck in this world of the temporal. That she recognized that if she was a virgin, being pregnant 2,000 years ago in a ultra-religious society, that this act could mean her shunning before her very family. That all she had ever known, the security that she had, she could be losing at right then. I would also say that she knew, as a young lady, the high risks of giving birth 2,000 years ago. The mortality rates for children were about 50%, the odds of a baby living to the age of three 2,000 years ago in Palestine. And the percentage of mothers dying while giving birth to children were far higher than they are even imaginable today have a baby then was a risk of your very own life. And I'm going to offer that these are the things I think Mary was struggling and grappling with there. And why do I say that? Is this some way just to knock Mary off of her perch? Is this a way for us to be very Protestant and un-Catholic in the way that we view her? That's not it at all. I think it helps you and I to be able to look at what God is doing in our lives and to be able to grapple with that more succinctly. Our biggest problem when we read the Bible is to make heroes out of the ordinary and to de-emphasize the main hero of the story, which is Jesus himself. We want other people to be better because then somehow that makes us feel like we've gone along for the ride. And this is the only, you know, even from a practicality, one of the reasons that I, I, I don't jibe with the theology of Mary that happens in the Catholic Church. And I'm, this isn't supposed to be this point, but I think it's important is that Mary then in Catholicism was elevated to this level where basically she had to become a god because of what happened and friends I think more so she's relatable to you and I in that she was very fully human in this and when the angel is standing before her she very well knows that yes the promise was here for her baby what did angels what did Gabriel say about her that there was an ellipses right She just didn't know how this would end. We tend to overlook this, this this concept wrapped in the Christmas story, that our God cares about us when we grapple with the things in our life and are prone to fear. Friends, when you are afraid, God gets it. So let's be really important. This is not where we go around the room trying to share this, but what are you afraid of? Spiders. I'm going to ask us to offer some more profound answers than that. Think to yourself and ask, what are you truly afraid of? Are you gripped by fear with physical safety? Maybe not even for yourself but for your family. I usually find most of my prayers centered not on me but really for my family because I'm like, if, if they're good then I'm good. But still, when I'm gripped by moments of fear, it's not about something happening to me. It's about something happening to them. Maybe you are in fear of your future security, maybe even financially. And that's why you're chasing things so passionately right now. That you're like, faith will have this time when I can find a way to take care of myself. And you're constantly looking at your checking account to see your balances, your credit cards. You, know, you have your app on the phone so that you can look at that on a moment's notice. You want to track everything so meticulously because you believe that if I can figure out how to get my finances correct, then I will truly be secure in the future. Maybe you're afraid of world events. Maybe your consumption of MSNBC, CNN, Fox News has gripped you to the point that you want to know what everything is happening. If you're living and dying on the announcement of certain cabinet members right now, then you might actually be gripped by fear Of what is going to happen in the world. And I do know some people who are spelling these moments of change. As saying no this is going to be the end of the world. And friends with all of these things. This is what's difficult about it right. We do not know in the present what fears are rational and irrational. We do not have a time machine. And we can't get there. So my fear of physical safety, of financial security, of world events could actually be right. And maybe you're saying, see, Steve, I should have been worried about that. I should have been fearful about it. But here's the thing that God does towards us. As he just says, you have no idea. And this is why... Verse 33, and hopefully I have it right here, is the key to what we can see in this interaction that Mary has with Gabriel. And the very last words about this little baby that his kingdom will never end. And the power of that phrase by the angel is taking Mary where she is living in the temporal and trying to thrust it into an eternal perspective. So as much as my fears might be rooted in today or what's going to happen next week or month or two years down the line. Maybe those are the fears that consume me. But what God wants us to know is that rather than be paralyzed by fear of something that may or may not happen. That we should trust the one who holds the keys to everlasting the point that Gabriel is saying right here to the little girl do not be afraid don't worry in the secular world this would be summarized by the words of Bob Marley maybe this is your message your earwig that pushes you through this that we ought not to worry about a thing it's all going to be alright scan your memory banks really quickly Think about those times you were gripped in the greatest fear because your mind ran away with you and you thought of the absolute worst thing that could happen in a situation. And not only did that not happen, but something even greater happened. And what did that fear serve you? As Bob wrote, the word for Gabriel for Mary is the same for us. We shouldn't be afraid because eternity puts this in context. And this, friends, and I really believe this, is that I don't, you know, when I say inspiration for Bob Marley to do this, and I know Ganja might have set some of that up, but I'm going to say that it's also hardwired into our DNA as being residual creation of eternal God. That God puts it within us not to be afraid, and he wants us to live fully in the security that he provides for us. And throughout the Bible, friends, we see God telling people, and like I said, over 150 times, do not be afraid it's not all about angels some of it is just this basic reassurance that you and I need to know also Isaiah what we read at the very beginning of the service out loud together do not fear for I'm with you do not be dismayed for I'm your God don't worry Two things key about this, as you and I really take heed to this. Two things. Number one, friends, what fears are gripping your life right now from which you cannot recover? Is it something this week? Is it something that will occur over the Christmas holiday? Is it your future in a few years? What are those fears that you have? Again, what's what's the message of Scripture? Do not be afraid. He'll be with you forever. I think you need to do that internally. But here's the second thing. Where Scripture really pushes this, and if we take this story and leave it out there, you're like, okay, so now what I need is angels coming to my footsteps and having tell me that I should not be afraid. And, um, you know, as much as I believe angels or Among Us or whatever, you know, I don't know, whatever country song you want to employ here. You know, most importantly for you and I is this. Who are you reassuring that they should not be afraid? Because that is your call as a follower of Jesus, true? That's your call. This is who you are. Maybe it's the little boy in the Kroger parking lot. (laughs) Maybe it's your spouse or your child. Maybe there's just a more robust situation that you're going to have the opportunity to speak into and to tell somebody. Do not be afraid. Friends, that's the message of scriptures. That's the message that we have been empowered to give. That's what you and I need to wrap our rhymes around. So, let's use this season, this opportunity to let our fear go. Just release it. Trust it to God. This is why I love our, our worship together. These times are my favorite times. And we always get to culminate this in a time of communion. Because friends, communion wraps into this perfectly. Because what communion is, is us recognizing the cross in our eternity, in our trust in God. And by the way, this is not, maybe I should have said this earlier, but coming into this time, fear is not sin, mind you. Right? So you're like, oh, I better not be afraid because otherwise god will be ticked at me fear is not sin friends but fear can lead into sin when we don't trust god to provide for us and that might sound scary you're like wait where's that point i don't know don't be obsessed with that but be obsessed with the message of what god is doing in your lives and what communion has done with And that is it reminds us every week that the cross is a very important thing for us that the cross was transformative, that the cross changed who we were. The cross, friends, made our eternity completely different. Isn't it great that that happened because a little teenage girl accepted a call to a mission? Something that I don't know how many of us would have been bold enough to do. That's what I love about our story. What God does is he weaves the narrative through. Jesus was the underdog. Even though he was God incarnate, he left his powers to the side. He came here, he lived for us, he died for us. So that's why we commune. We commune to remember the cross. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of prayer, or a, a prayer, and then we're going to have a time of communion. And we have the trays up here. And um, just want you to come forward to get that. I know that's requires some some logistical work if you're in a pew. But that's fine. <laughs> but you can go forward and do me a favor as you're coming forward, will you think about these fears that you have? The fears that you can leave by the wayside? Because you're taking your fears to the cross. And you're laying it down and you know what Jesus is saying back to you? know what he's saying? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. David's going to pray for us. We're going to commune."